are listening to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. Welcome to the Organization for Human Brain Mapping Neurosalience podcast. I'm your host, Peter Banatini. Here, I interview neuroscientists of all types and all backgrounds and discuss their work as well as the latest developments, issues, and controversies in the field of brain mapping. This is part two to my discussion with Jack Gallant. Jack is a neuroscientist and engineer and currently a chancellor's professor of psychology and class of 1940 endowed chair at UC Berkeley and is affiliated with the Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science. He has moved from basic neuroscience research to fMRI over a decade ago to the benefit of the field as his work has been deeply rigorous, deeply creative, and deeply thought-provoking. The first podcast with him delves so deeply into his approach for assessing fMRI data and his philosophy of doing good science and good fMRI that we really didn't get a chance to talk about his groundbreaking results and what questions they opened up. So I invited him back and here we discuss his truly fascinating and potentially paradigm shifting results, specifically those that describe widely distributed semantic maps in the brain that shift and warp depending on the task itself. These results, at least in my opinion, open up new avenues for insight into fundamentals of brain organization. The brain's just not a conglomeration of distinct and static modules, but a shifting landscape of representation, much of which could be shaped by our experience in the world. How we actually change these landscapes through our actions or intentions or attention is a open and potentially profound question. How do these shift? How does experience cause these to shift? So uh, we, we delve into that and we delve into the questions that, it, that those results open up. Here we also discuss the prospects for layer fMRI, as well as the challenges of clinical fMRI. Not only the practical challenges of finding a good clinical application, but also the nuts and bolts challenges of actually getting fMRI processing in every scanner uh, around the world. In all, uh, this podcast was, was really an information-rich and in engaging discussion with one of the true luminaries in the field. So I hope you enjoy it. Jack, thank you again for um, for coming on, and you're you're my first double guest. And, and the reason the reason why I wanted to have you on again is because you know the conversation was so good last time, but it was so intense and focused on a specific area, talking about you know general issues in science and and uh, and also time series analysis details that um, that I, I really wanted to talk a lot more about your results, which I. I've always liked not only your approach, but you know, in my opinion, and, and, and I'm, I might be wrong, but in my opinion, I think that your results, you know, using your encoding method, uh, uh, having people either listening to, to stories or, or watching videos, or, or now you have a whole slew of other things that they're doing, uh, it actually shows these uh, you know, semantic maps that really make you step back and think about how, what's actually going on, because it's very different than how people understand how the brain is organized in this modular fashion, uh, how you know one area does one thing and, and then that you focus on that. Here, it's sort of like distributed through the brain in this sort of quasi regular, but still slightly a little bit more random way. And, and uh, I just really wanna delve into how that's different than what people understand and how it might flip in some sense or, or open up 
an area of research about deeper understanding about how, how we think about the brain. So just to begin, why, why don't you just simply, um, I mean, obviously it's rather than, you know, you, you, give, you gave talks like this and, and, and you have slides, but, but just to summarize how you feel your results with that, you, you know, you first, first came out a number of years ago, but now uh, you've expanded on it, how this is, these were different than our typical understanding. I mean, for instance, you know, there's a lot of, like Jeff Binder, for instance, uh, is, uh, you know, published a paper on, you know, meta-analysis. And, and it seems that this sort of flies in the face of, of a lot of that work and to some degree. Um, so I'm kind of curious if you could describe your work a little bit and then talk about how this expands or maybe temporarily confuses the field in terms of, of, of how we understand how the brain is processing semantic information. Sure, Peter. Um, thanks for having me back. The last conversation was pretty fun and uh, hopefully this will be useful for people. I think the thing to remember about all science and all neuroscience is our knowledge of phenomena is always less complicated than the phenomena. And part of that is because the real world is complicated. And part of it is that our motivation as scientists is to make simple models of the world. So I remember once many, many years ago, Tony Movshin told me, uh, well, Jack, the world's made of two kinds of people, simplifiers and complexifiers. <laughs> You're a complexifier. Nobody <laughs> likes a complexifier. And I kind of understand where he's coming from on that, right? So um, my view is just, I want to build an accurate model, you know, and I, I don't want it to be more complicated than it has to be, but I don't want it to be more simple than it should be. So uh, for me, you know, thinking about the right level of building a model and collecting data is always an optimization problem of trying to make the simplest model possible that still accurately explains the data and predicts results correctly and will generalize to new situations. So, you know, that's like, as we discussed extensively in the last time um, we talked, you know, my whole lab is oriented toward to trying to solve that optimization problem in the most efficient way possible. When people first started doing fMRI, there were no methods available for doing this. So everything kind of had to be uh, invented. And of course, the fastest way to invent things is to import them from somewhere else. So, you know, the very first data analysis procedure, as we discussed the last show, was SPM, which was actually invented for PET, not fMRI. And the first methods for actually doing good fMRI experiments that where you could get reliable results that actually seemed to be informative and seemed to generalize well across people were classic kind of additive and subtractive factors logic experiments imported from psychology by Nancy Canwisher and other people like that who did great work early on sort of importing this classic, very robust um, psychology approach uh, of comparative conditions into MRI and sort of establishing the methods you would need to find areas that were specialized for processing certain kinds of stimuli or for performing certain kinds of tasks. Yeah. And of course, that was the bread and butter for in fMRI for quite a while. But you know, whenever you, as we discussed the last time we were talking, whenever you do a simple experiment involving just a couple of conditions, then the answers you get are always going to be projected onto those simple conditions. You can only find results in that subspace. That doesn't mean that the results you, that you find using simple experiments are wrong. It just means that they're not completely correct, right? Okay. So our approach is uh, more of a data-driven approach rather than you know, sort of doing going to your favorite fishing hole and using a very specific bait to catch the, exactly the fish you want. We have more of a drift net approach where you just like throw out this giant net into the ocean of data and 
dredge up what you can and then search through the fish for what you what you want. Yeah. And when you do that, you just find that things are always more complicated than they appear to be uh, under the simple stimulus conditions. And the complications are kind of, I would say, of two forms. First of all, um, the conventional regions of interest that are usually reported using a simple localizer uh, oftentimes end up consisting of multiple subdivisions. So, for example, my lab and uh, Calinate Grill Spectre and Kevin Weiner have shown that FFA, the fusiform base area, which is a classic, one of the first uh, functional areas ever found, in fact, that was actually found using PET before MRI, is actually consists of several functionally distinct subregions. And uh, the existence of subregions is true for almost every uh, functional ROI we've looked at. All of the place-related areas, PPA, the parahippocampal place area, occipital place area, RSC, all consist of multiple subdivisions. The extrate body area, LOC, I mean, all of these functional areas consist of multiple functional subdivisions. And if you use a, a coarse brush, then you recover, you know, an aggregate of multiple areas. But the other interesting thing that you often find, or always find, is that the functional specialization in the human brain essentially tiles all of the cortex. So if you, you know, go back to classical studies in just in vision, um, and you look at higher order visual cortex, you'll see that, you know, the ROIs that are identified are kind of spotty. They're little islands in a sea of sort of unknown functional assignment. Yes. But of course, all of that visual cortex has a functional assignment. It's just you need to use the right method to recover it. So our results for both in vision studies and in later language studies show that essentially the entire cortex is tiled with these rich, fairly complicated, functionally specialized maps. And since we're using MRI, and MRI is obviously not neurophysiology. It doesn't, uh, the resolution of MRI, the resolution of the machine is two millimeters, but of course the functional resolution is lower than that because we're recording most of our functional signals from blood vessels around the size of the voxels. And those are actually, uh, since they're draining vessels, they're receiving input from a large number of columns that may extend over a much broader area than a couple of millimeters. So these MRI maps are pretty coarse, even as great as they are. So, you know, we have to assume that the functional specialization will actually continue probably below the level of current MRI and we'll be able to see even richer, more complicated kinds of patterns with uh, improved uh, functional imaging methods in the future. Yeah. All right. Um, so, so just to talk about your maps a little bit, you know, right. I mean, you have, I mean, so when I've seen your maps, I'm actually looking at one right now from a, a recent paper when I, you know, you have, you know, you color coded based on how you label, you know, what you've pulled out, like things like regression or locomotion, animals, communication, humans, there's, there's many multidimensional space in which you can color code this. And you know, I'm looking at this and it covers huge swaths of the brain. And it's sort of like, and this is actually brings also to an interesting question of individual studies versus group studies. Um, you know, there's, it's all over the brain and it doesn't clearly to me, I mean, it seems like it, it lines up some, somewhat, it, it avoids certain areas like, you know, primary motor cortex, auditory, but it, it still seems right. It's, it's, it's actually somewhere between random and ordered. Uh, it's not like super clear, but it's, I mean, when you look at subject by subject variability of this, you see approximate lining up of these areas, but there's still more variability in these areas across subjects than you would, for instance, if you did motor cortex or, or auditory or whatever. So what does that imply about 
uh, for instance, like for instance, in semantic areas, are, is the proximity of these areas indicative of how close they are in some sort of meta-semantic space? Like for instance, you know, if you had, uh, you know, you have areas that are, for instance, related to locomotion, but then you have areas that are related to manipulation that are extremely far away. But let's say you have a person who is some in, in their experience growing up or whatever, they've manipulated and moved uh, and worked with things like that a lot. And so would that be closer or would they be, what is determining the distribution of these maps? Is it, is it how quasi random is it? Uh, okay, so right. that you brought up three different points, so let me address them in turn. Right. But even before I get to those three points, let me let me mention there's uh, for those of you who are listening to the podcast who want to see these maps, my lab website, which is a bit out of date now, but uh, it contains a lot of uh, viewers uh, using a software program that's open source that anybody can download called PyCortex that allows you to interact with these data from our various experiments in our lab. And um, the experiment that Peter is talking about right now is uh, a language experiment where people simply listen to stories in the MRI machine. And um, you can imagine when you listen to a story, there's uh, information represented at multiple scales. There's phonemes and morphemes and syntax and semantics and narrative. And it's hard to pull out really fast uh, things from um, an auditory experience or a spoken language in MRI because the bold signal is so slow. But semantics, which is the meaning of the language, that unfolds on a time scale of seconds. And so its time scale is commensurate with MRI. And the signals, the, the sort of functional signatures of semantic uh, a brain activity related to semantics or semantic representations in the brain are easy to pull out with MRI. So people go in the MRI machine, they listen to stories, we label the stories in terms of semantic features, and then we map those semantic features across the surface of cortex. And when you do this, you find out that a huge swath of uh, the brain, probably like two thirds of the brain, turns out to be semantically selective for one or more semantic categories. And that these maps are very complicated and interdigitated. And uh, there are, you know, in broad strokes, different subregions, multiple subregions that appear to represent different kinds of semantic categories. Like one of my favorites, because it reinforces a lot of other prior research, is the number network. There, there is a, a network of something like 10 different sort of spots, hot spots in the brain, I'm going to call them ROIs if you want, that all seem to selectively represent uh, numbers, time, dates, and money. Yeah. Uh, and those things are all kind of represented together. But there are other networks. For example, there's a social network, which consists of dozens of different areas that all respond to concepts about families and family relationships and bad things that happen to families like marriage. And, you know, well, I shouldn't say marriage, death, um, divorce, <laughs> um, and good things, marriage, births, things like that, right? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, there, there are many, many different networks in the brain that uh, you can see in these maps. But as you said, these maps are very complicated. And if you, I'm, I'm glad you noticed that if you squint and you look across several individual maps, you can see that there's some sort of level of commonality. But really, in, in these data, about, I, I, you know, as, as a general kind of rule, about a third of the functional data, the modelable functional data, the non-noise sort of signal in these functional maps, is uh, sort of common across people, and about two-thirds reflects individual differences. Okay. And we, my, my guess is that the reason for the individual differences is exactly as you said, it has to do with, with learning. Uh, and what you find is the 
semantically related representations that are near the sensory areas, like the higher order visual semantics, are very regular across individuals. The, the functionally sort of selective, the semantic selectivity of those uh, little sort of hotspots or regions of interest is, is consistently organized across individuals. But as you move into prefrontal cortex, that organization becomes less consistent across individuals. And, that, you know, if you think about it, that's kind of what you would expect from a deep yeah. network that is trained to perform a complicated task. Or a, or a variety of complicated tasks. The, the parts of the network that are constrained by the sensors are not going to have much yeah. flexibility. And parts of the network that are very deep are going to have a lot more individual variability. Yeah. And what the last issue is you asked me about principles of organization. Do I have any idea of why the maps are organized as they are? And of course, the first answer to that is no. But, uh, but I can speculate. If you, you know, if you just take one concept like doc, and you map the concept of dog across the brain, which we can do with these data-driven experiments by just looking at the dog subspace of a much larger semantic space that may consist of thousands of semantic concepts. You'll find that there will be many patches in the brain that respond to the concept dog. And that can be whether a dog is shown or, or you, you hear a dog or uh, you read about a dog, right? And our current theory is that some of these sort of dog-related patches are representing specific sensory qualities that have to do with dogs, uh, like how a dog smells or how a dog sounds or how a dog looks. And other of these sort of dog-related patches are representing more abstract information about dogs. And perhaps your prior experience with dogs, maybe you were bitten by a dog when you were a kid and you don't like dogs, right? So yeah. Yeah. all of that information is represented in this diffuse, distributed uh, representation of information. And somehow through the miracle of consciousness, it all comes together in our brains in terms of this sort of unitary concept of dog. Yeah. But that doesn't seem to be represented anywhere explicitly. I mean, it almost suggests that, right. I mean, there's some principle by how they might cluster. And, and it seems like there's, right, it would be, I mean, completely opens up the idea of, you know, studying individuals, maybe experts in certain areas and, and uh, or, you know, and trying to and look at their behavior and or, or look at their past experiences and seeing how these these maps vary in, you know, in, in how they warp to a certain space or, or, or uh, you know, representation of a certain area. And it also seems to suggest, and maybe I'll just jump to this as well, that you know, people are trying to find models. You know, people are you know, neuromodeling in some sense, making uh, either AI-inspired um, uh, models or, or whatnot of, of the brain. And it almost seems that rather than being a, a hierarchy uh, in, in some sense, like a deep neural net, it's more like this loose associative net where you have you know, ensembles of neurons that that resonate and they fire and, and then, you know, other areas that might be resonant might fire similarly. And, and it's, it seems like it's a very, it's like a, it's, it's more like a shallow associative net in the cortex. Uh, not talking about like the visual cortex or maybe the cerebellum or, or base of the brain, but, but the but in general, it seems that a principle might be that, you know, the brain, you know, one third of it is genetically determined as you mentioned it, but, but, uh, or maybe, and then two thirds of it is purely, you know, comes about by uh, sort of this loose associations between these areas that, that tend to start firing together. Um, I don't know what, what your thought of uh, and that is, but, um, or if you even know what I'm trying to say, but. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I know what you're trying to say. I, I just want to say that you said it was genetically determined. I don't know. Okay. So, <laughs> I, I, I don't know, know yeah, exactly. how these, 
how these networks develop. But, you know, since I am an old visual neurophysiologist, I sort of my, my starting point for thinking about everything is always visual neurophysiology. And as you know, you know, the, the visual network in primates has been worked out you know, mapped really, really well. There's something on the order of like 40 visual areas. Yes. They're uh, organized in this hierarchical parallel system. So there is a hierarchy, yes. but it's also highly parallel. And there's a lot of crosstalk between areas. And, you know, the, the network's basically 50% connected. You know, if you take those 40 areas, um, you'd have, what, 1,600 connections, and um, you actually have 800 of them. So, you know, that that's a, is that right, 1,600? Yeah, right. It's like more than that. 40 times 40? That's 600. Anyway, so um, anyway, there's a lot. There's a lot of connections. And um, that is also true in the human brain. Now you, you scale up the human brain relative to a small primate and you figure, okay, there's maybe there's 60 visual areas in the human brain. Plus, you know, all these other hundreds of areas for doing other things that make, you know, for example, language, right? Primates are very poor conversationalists. Humans have very rich language. So there's probably some, there could be something between say three and 500 brain areas. Yeah. If you define them like anatomically as they have done in primate studies. And if that network is 50% connected and it has maybe between, between vision and a motor output, maybe 10 levels or sorry, uh, 20 levels of processing in the hierarchy, that's, that's going to be a really complicated network. Yeah. And even still, that's simplifying in the sense that, that you're looking at these groups of, air, you know, millions of neurons with, within an area. I mean, each neuron could have some sort of unique connections in some sense. I mean, you're looking at the Oh, scale. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, like, uh, you know, area V4, like one of my favorite areas because I have spent so many years working on that area. You know, it might have a bunch of functionally distinct subclasses of neurons within it that have all their own connections and project to different areas. That's certainly possible. And then, of course, that this network is evolving over not evolving over time, but responding over time because it's recurrent. So a visual stimulus that comes into the visual system, if it's unexpected, will give a different response than if it's expected. And then over time, while that visual stimulus is on the screen, the response will evolve uh, as prior intentions uh, are combined using attention with the incoming data. Yes. And in a classic deep neural network that you would implement using machine learning, that time uh, loop is represented as other layers of processing. You can just yeah. essentially unroll time. So you can, if you take a network that's maybe only has 10 layers, but it has 10 time steps in it, it's now a hundred deep neural network. Yeah. So if you try to marginalize out those recurrent loops, then you have not 300 brain areas, but you essentially have 3000 brain areas. So that's going to be, it's going to be complicated. Yes. It's going to be a hard problem. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you're. So, I mean, it's right. It's almost impossible to sort of, you know, look at these maps and say, oh, well, this must be, you know, this sort of thing, right? It's probably some, like you were saying, it's some probably some combination of a hierarchical uh, uh, organization and uh, association, a, a loose associative right organization in that regard. And you know, one one of the problems we have in MRI is we just have very poor temporal resolution, and so a lot of the most interesting stuff that's happening is happening on short time scales, and we're just blind to that, unfortunately. Yeah, I was wondering about timescale too. So when you when you make these regressors, I mean, there's not only short timescales. I mean, certainly, and that's why so many you know people I've worked with somebody who's who's trying to do you know sentence reconstruction with with fMRI using machine learning, and and it, and it fails as you say because you know people 
you know, they change context and the, and the words come by very quickly and, and, and human dynamics just can't. It's an inverse problem. That you yeah, can you, you can tell, you can say something about the topic of the sentence, but you can't, you can't reconstruct the words. It's just too fast. Yeah, but what about other timescales like that are slower? Like I imagine in the movies, for instance, there's even more slowly evolving timescales that, that uh, might be interesting to look into as far as, uh, you know, emotional content or, or, or even, you know, how a person reacts to the general, you know, how, how the story is going. Or I'm sure you've, you've thought about how to model this. Oh, sure. Well, using movies is great because we know a lot about visual stimuli and how, what their statistical structure is. And um, natural movies are one, have a one over F uh, frequency spectrum in space and time. So that means there's information at all different frequencies and whatever frequency you look at, there will be some information in the movie at that frequency. So if you want to reconstruct a movie, uh, you can take advantage of, of that and yeah. you can just reconstruct the low temporal frequencies. So, you know, you probably remember our, our lab kind of became notorious in 2011 for doing the first movie reconstruction from fMRI data. And, um, the thing that I often tell people that surprises them is if you look at those movie reconstructions, they actually look quite good. Yeah. Uh, but if you look at the MRI data, it's horrible. In fact, all the, all the MRI data is giving you is essentially a texture map yes. of an image every second. And yet from that, from just that texture map, you can create a whole block of space time kind of construction of the movie in space yeah. time. A reconstruction and the reason for that all has to do with the, these uh one over f correlations in space and time in natural images so essentially we're, we're using natural movies themselves as a prior and the posterior information the uh, uh, excuse me the the likelihood the the um, mri information that we're getting is very poor but it still provides a unique constraint on the prior such that the posterior that we pull out the movie is looks good. Yes. So, you know, that this is one reason I don't actually like decoding as a as an approach. I think decoding's decoding's a very handy tool for building a decoder if you want to do work. It's not a great way I think to do science because it confounds the prior with the likelihood in a implicit way that doesn't allow you to cleanly separate what you know versus what your data is telling you. Yes. Okay. Sorry, that was a little rant about decoding. No, 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 no. That was great. Um, no, I can go on for hours about decoding if you want. Just yeah, as no. you know, as you can expect. <laughs> maybe will, we better uh, not go there. That's noted. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it is interesting, though, how you might make those maps better. Is it just a matter of the functional maps? Yeah, or uh, the the decoded uh, maps in some sense, which is you know the okay. length, but. Um, just going to higher resolution or uh, higher temporal resolution or, or, or just taking in more areas that you use for? Ah, well, sure. I mean, if, if you're building a decoder, you only have two things, right? You have a prior and you have the data that you that is coming in. And so obviously, if you improve the data that is coming in, then you will build a better decoder. And yes. we built in 2011, we built a very low level decoder that really was only using information from the first couple visual, renatopically mapped visual areas. Yeah, And then in 2016, we published another paper that built a high-level semantic decoder on that same movie data set, and it decoded the semantic category of the movies, but we've never put them together, and one could certainly do that. Uh, we actually did build a, a joint decoder for static images, but we never bothered to do it for movies. So if you wanted to do that, you could certainly do it, and it would probably be a useful thing to do. 
if that was like, if that's what rocked your boat. Well, I mean, I think actually, so even in general, though, I think that that's certainly one direction to go. And right, that could be interesting. Um, but it, but talking more about these maps, though, have you looked into how much they, I mean, what's the time scale of how they change? Like, for instance, um, you know, if you had, uh, put somebody in an intensive training for like about a month or something of, of, of learning some sort of association within certain areas that might be activated in the map, do they grow with, with training? I mean, how quickly, what's the timescale? Does it happen within days or months? Um, and then we'll get into talking about attention a little bit too, but I'm kind of curious about how, how they vary over time. I think, I think we need to, I think we need to talk about attention first okay. because um, my personal guess, it's a, this is a hunch, right? It's not, I have no solid evidence for, for this, but it's just my hunch is that learning is driven by attention. What you attend to is what you learn. And that you can think about attention and learning as on a kind of a continuum where short time scale changes are what we call attention. But if those happen a lot, then you get these longer scale, longer time scale, more permanent changes that we call learning. Yeah. So we have looked at both of those. You know, we've done a, a lot of work on attention over the years, starting in neurophysiology and then moving to MRI. And um, recently, one of my students, one of my awesome students who's just graduating, her PhD thesis is actually on learning. Turns out to be lear it's learning songs. It's learning to sing uh, karaoke songs. Huh. And so we can actually explore changes in the semantics of language production uh, from when you first hear the song and you haven't learned it, and then during learning the song and then after you learn the song. And you okay. do see substantial changes in these semantic representations uh, that have to do with learning the song. Uh, but those, I think, are are just reflective of the shorter term underlying uh, semantic shifts that we see. Okay, so I mean, you said something though that that actually struck me, and even reading your papers and and, and looking at one of your talks, uh, uh, that's almost mind blowing in some sense. I mean, to me at least, uh, the idea that and and exactly what you said, and that's exactly the sort of thoughts I thought were, was that attention is sort of like you know you attend to something and you 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 sort of suddenly the, the cortical representation of that area that you're attending to, like for instance, you have that task of, of attending to either people or moving objects or, or, or things like that. And, and if you're attending to one or the other, the cortical representation expands. And that sort of is potentially right. Like you say, the basis of learning, you, these areas become more entrained to, to fill that space. And then, and as you have right. more space, you have more skill. And, and, and so that's really fascinating uh, to me because I don't think that that type of construct has ever been made if, with regard to attention. People looked at modulation of magnitude of the activation. There is actually a pretty old line of research on this. It's just that everybody ignores it because people don't like to think about complicated things. They just want to think about simple things. You know, the, as you said, the classic sort of effects of attention that all come again from visual neurophysiology and have been around for you know 50 years at this point are uh, attention can change the baseline response of a neuron. So make it spike more or less. It can change the response gain, which is the number of spikes evoked by a stimulus. Yep. And then uh, more recently, uh, research that came from um, out of actually John Mansell's lab is it can change the noise correlation between the neurons. Okay. In other words, it can reduce the basically the level of noise as measured by the noise correlations between neurons. All three of those mechanisms are incredibly important, but they're all akin to basically the volume control on your radio or tuning in the dial on your on an old analog radio, you know, to just get the station just right. Right. They're right. they're not changing what's on this radio. They're just making the signal better. 
Yeah. This other mechanism of tuning shifts is a completely has a completely different effect. It doesn't just make the signal better, it changes the signal. So it's like changing the radio station. Yeah. And this is not originally an MRI finding. In fact, as far as I can tell, the first person who noticed this effect was Earl Miller recording in prefrontal cortex uh, from uh, animals that were trained to do multiple tasks. And what he found was when the animal's doing task A, the prefrontal neuron would look like it was specialized for doing task A. And then when the animal did task B, the prefrontal neuron would completely change its response properties and it would look like it was doing task B. And Earl called this mis mixed selectivity, meaning the neuron was not selective for one thing, it was selective for multiple things. Okay. Yeah. We later on, kind of uh, in a parallel line of research, because we weren't really thinking about it relating to what Earl did, found that back in the visual cortex, when you trained uh, an animal to attend to say pattern, to look for a, a dog versus look for a cat, that when the animal is looking for the dog, the neuron's filtering function, you know, these are, V4 is an intermediate visual area, so the neurons are pretty dumb relative to prefrontal cortex. Um, the neurons filtering function would look more dog-like, it would shift yeah. towards dogness, and when the animals looking for a cat, the neuron would shift to catness. Now, the magnitude of these shifts were not as pronounced as what Earl saw. Earl saw the neuron just becoming, you know, task A neuron versus a task B neuron. They were completely unrelated. Yes. Back in V4, the effect was really like about a 15% effect. But it turns out that if you look at the other metrics of attention in V4, like baseline shifts or gain shifts, those are 15% effects. So, Basically, what's happening is that the neurons back in the early visual system don't have much flexibility. They're tightly coupled and wired to the incoming sensory stimulus. In fact, in V1, attention effects are so small that uh, every neurophysiologist that's ever studied attention in V1 is worried that what they're actually seeing is eye movement artifacts due to covert, subtle, very tiny shifts in the eye position during the task that are below the measurement window. Because those, those effects are like on the order of 2%. Nobody in physiology studies uh, attention in V1 because it's just a, a nightmare. Yeah. I should mention that in MRI, something weird goes on because in MRI, attention effects in V1 are like 20% of the signal. So yes. there's some weird decoupling between attention as measured in MRI and attention as measured in neurophysiology. And that's just something that MRI people have to keep in mind. Yeah, no, that's it, exactly what you, so exactly what you're saying. I, I've seen that often where, where, right, with neurophysiology, the, the effect is extremely subtle, where a technique, whereas in MRI, it sort of blows up and it's much right. higher. Um, yeah. So there are, there are a lot of theories about why this happens. Um, one theory, the theory that, uh, well, I'll just, I'll just mention two theories rather than like the four or five that are out there. One theory is that attention is a feedback effect and yet MRI is measuring essentially blood flow near the mitochondria. So when you end up with uh, a feedback neuron projecting into say from, from you know, maybe posterior infrotemporal cortex back to V4, yeah. then the posterior infrotemporal cortex neural activity is reflected in V4 in the terminals of the projecting neurons because they're extracting blood locally from V4 even though the neuron's cell body is in PIT. Interesting. That's one theory. Uh, I don't, I, I used to think that was a cool theory, but I don't subscribe to that anymore. Now I actually think it's just probably has to do with the temporal integration window. So if you have uh, an attention effect, that's only 15%, but then you integrate over a second, then that can grow to be a much larger apparent effect. So I, I think it probably just has to do with the time scale.
Yeah, we're actually the low level non-attention effect is is sort of a shorter time scale in some sense. And so you have the attention integrated. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's the different time scales of feed forward versus feedback. And and the reason I like that theory is um, if it turns out that all of our functional assignments in fMRI are, are displaced due to feedback projections, um, then we're just all totally screwed and we might as well <laughs> just go home. So I don't want to think that. That's bad. Well, there's also, I mean, it also seems to me at least, I mean, without deviating too much from this, it also seems to me that it's linked. I mean, so Logothetis in his first, one of his first uh, confirmation papers about fMRI in 2001, he was showing, you know, this, this linear relationship between the bold signal and local field potentials. And it was nicely linear, but then, but then he never, but then the plot stops uh, at the very low effects. Uh, so and it, it has to become incredibly nonlinear. So that implies that, you know, it seems to suggest, and maybe attention effect falls into this, is, but for very subtle uh, neuronal effects, you get a much, much higher representation with bold. Uh, yeah. So it could be like a threshold of like- Threshold you know, little bits that you cause Absolutely. It. So they could be like- Or it could be that, you know, the um, uh, interneurons, which you, we don't record from directly in physiology because they're too small, have a disproportionate effect on feedback signals versus feed forward signals. Yeah. And so that's a large, you know, that's a lot of synapses. And if they're disproportionately affected, then, you know, there's a lot of weird things you can imagine are happening, but yeah, exactly. I, just, I just want to caution people, you know, you got to be really careful with attention in, in MRI and especially the number one thing you have to be careful of with attention in MRI is you have to be sure that your, whatever measurement you're making could not potentially just be an artifact of this huge attentional nonlinearity. And yes. it's not because you can't look at like response gain in MRI. You can't look at baseline shifts in MRI because of these nonlinearities. In fact, the only thing I would argue you can look at in MRI is representational shifts because yeah. those can't be due to just some response nonlinearity. Well, I mean, if you had a, if you had a noise over space that, you know, going above threshold in some sense, but yes, it could do that. Also different subpopulations. So if you, if, if you have a voxel that shifts from being a dog voxel to a cat voxel, you can imagine that there's two ways it could do that. All the neurons in that voxel could shift from dog to cat, or there could be a dog population in there and a cat population in there, and one just turns on and off. Yeah. So there are, in fact, artifactual ways that neurophysiology results that don't have any shifts at all and are just game changes could lead to attentional shifts in, in MRI. Yeah. But that to me is the nice thing about this particular MRI result that shows these representational shifts uh, is that it ha it is confirmed in neurophysiology. It's everything we see in MRI shifts of tuning of individual voxels is completely consistent with the neurophysiology data that we have too. Uh, the most notable thing being that the magnitude of these attentional shifts is much smaller in the peripheral visual areas than it is in prefrontal cortex. Yes. Would, yeah. And that's, so it, Basically, it's attention scales with uh, the, the magnitude of attention in neurophysiology scales with the distance from the sensory periphery. And that is also true for MRI. All right. And that's actually, like you were saying, it can be explained by a relatively simple you know, idea that you don't really want things changing too much in the primary sensory. I mean, it's sort of tied to you know, basic information coming in about the world. And then, and then later, the, the brain is sort of creating these models and adapting and, and who knows? Well. I, I have an even dumber way to think about it, which um, to me, the, the dumbest way to think about something that actually accounts for the data is, is a good thing. So, you know, if you think about just a fixed deep neural network, where 
the connections are spatially limited, meaning that a neuron in layer one can't just project to any neuron in layer two, but can only project to a few nearby layers on the on the sort of topographic map. Yes. Now, you know, artificial neural networks like you build at Microsoft don't have that property, but of course the human, well, animal brains do because neurons are trying to minimize their wiring. Yes. Right? So in that kind of map, um, what will happen is a neuron, say, in if you think about a map of V1 versus V2, a neuron in V2 doesn't have much uh, support from V1. So no, no matter which uh, sort of afferents you turn on and off, it's not going to change the tuning curve in, in V2 very much if you, if you just change some subset of, of projections from V1. Right. right. But a neuron in, uh, say, 10 layers up, even if all the projections are local, as you march up the, the chain, you know, the, by the time you get to prefrontal cortex, those neurons have access to the entire sort of uh, sensory representation. And so yeah. anything could potentially happen yeah. as the weights of the efferents change. So really tiny changes in the periphery can, you know, you could, you could change just the connection weights between V1 and V2, upweighting them and downweighting them locally. And that could have an enormous effect on the representation downstream in, in higher order uh, cortex. Yeah. And if you think about it, that's actually exactly the way that deep neural networks, artificial deep neural networks learn. You have a cost function and you adjust over iterations of learning, you subtly adjust the connections between the different layers. And um, those little tiny subtle adjustments accumulate as you go forward. And so even though the sensory representation incoming to the first layer of the network is pretty stable, the uh, higher order representation in these networks can completely change its characteristic based on learning. I think the difference between the artificial networks and animals is that in the artificial networks, just for ease of implementation, training is uh, training and, and uh, use are like two separate epics, right? You train the network and then you freeze it and then you deploy it. Right. And animals don't have that luxury. They're constantly being trained and constantly being updated. So this learning process is built into the very function of the network and we're constantly uh, updating our, our weights. Yeah. And, and so along those lines, um, it seems that, so when attention comes into this, um, like for instance, if you have a subject and you say, oh, suddenly look for look for bicycles or look for houses, uh, the representation will, will you know, almost instantaneously increase uh, in that regard. So you have a tension uh, modulating uh, this, this hierarchical sort of uh, construct such that in prefrontal cortex or elsewhere in the frontal lobe, whatever, it will be large, more largely represented. Right. I mean, essentially, oh, in, in a task, when you when you give somebody a task, uh, all of the neurons try to do whatever they can to help represent task-related variables. Yes. And and neurons in the sensory areas aren't going to be able to change their their tuning much, but neurons in prefrontal cortex can completely change what they do. Yeah. Yeah. And and so how do so which we call I call a matched filter. Yes. Um, you know, that basically that because in vision, you know, neurons are filters. And so this is just a way the, the filter is becoming matched to the task. So we have in my lab, I've always called this a match filter mechanism. Uh, the match filter story is uh, it's kind of an, it's an explanation pitched in terms of the observables of the data. It doesn't really talk much about mechanism. It's more like, look, the neurons are becoming matched to the task, right? Um, back to Earl Miller, uh, Stefano Fusi and Earl Miller have this kind of cool computational model of mixed selectivity that uh, 
is pitched at a different level. It's a it's an actual mechanistic model that talks about um, the uh, the reason to have mixed selectivity as essentially enabling a much higher dimensional representation of of tasks than you would get merely by the presence of the neurons alone. Uh, I don't think the I think the evidence is weak in favor of that specific mechanism, um, just because it's really hard thing to look at. But uh, but it's a nice it's a nice mechanism, and I think the only sort of implementation level or, or algorithm level explanation we have for this. My my view of this is more of a, at the computational level, going okay. back to Mars old theories. Right? It's more so like we, what we, is it trying to do? So with those models, where does I mean, where does the modulation of you know, so so the intention that someone has, uh, you have asked the golden question. <laughs> that is the question, right? So, I, and I love the fact that you brought this up because this is the key. That this is the actually the most interesting part of this whole yes, this whole finding. Yeah. Um, everybody in neuroscience certainly you know is influenced by old traditional visual neurophysiology, and the the idea of <laughs> that. that all of us who grew up in physiology have is labeled lines, the labeled line theory of the brain. There's a neuron, it produces a signal. When it produces a signal, it's a, that, that signal is telling you information about some specific thing. If that's a cat neuron and it spikes, there's a cat, right? It's evidence for a cat. And all you have to do is accumulate evidence and yep. you know based on the line what the thing is. Yeah, you can passively. Yeah, well, even if you do segmentation, right? It's still a labeled line, right? So, okay, I'm, I've now done segmenta figured down segmentation. So only cats are coming through my system, but the only neurons that are going to respond to the cat are the cat neurons, right? Whereas in a, in a, in a matched filter mechanism, then now all the neurons are trying to become cat neurons. And so somebody downstream who looks at the output of this neuron, of any neuron, if a downstream decoder has to have some information, either explicit or implicit, about what the task is. Otherwise, they cannot decode that information. And so where does that, where is that task information come from? And how is it represented? And the answer is nobody knows. Yeah. That's... Nobody has a clue. <laughs> but it's a really cool question. It's it got to be distributed in some way. Yeah. And, it, and when I finally got my head around that question, in some sense, it seems like it, you know, it's, it seems like it hints at, yeah, some sort of, some, like you're saying, some sort of signaling mechanism that that ties into what the person's intent is uh i mean it's obviously it has to be in there somewhere right otherwise the system couldn't work but it doesn't have to be explicit there doesn't have to be lines you know labeled lines with the task right 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 you can imagine setting this up so there's task lines that where their labels are faithful that tell you what the task is and then everybody else is being modulated according to the task and so that can be flexible but it you don't even need that this could all be implicit somehow rather in the design of the system we just don't understand enough how these systems work to be able to deal with that because in current artificial neural networks, you know, and in, you know, traditional like networks going back to, you know, McCullough and Pitts, right back to World War II, this, this kind of mechanism just doesn't appear anywhere in there. Right. And so nobody even has any, <laughs> any framework, conceptual framework for thinking about it. But, and I think that, that that question, I mean, really does potentially open up. If you could figure out how to study it. Yeah, if, right. If you can even begin to model it, or even begin to think about how how that's done. Um, yeah. So okay, all right. So it's an open question, but I but I I don't think that. I mean, I I really haven't thought about that until I started preparing for this. Uh, 
but you ended up at the right place, which makes me very happy. Like you asked the most important question because the most important question isn't, oh, why, you know, how do you get these representational shifts? Any deep neural network does that during learning. We already know that's, that can happen. So, you know, in some sense, that's not a big deal. Right. This other issue is, is to me a much more fundamental issue because it's something that we, we just don't, it's like consciousness, like, what the hell is that? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> and I'm always tempted to sort of like maybe tap into that. I mean, the, the fact is, is that maybe it somehow is related to our subjective, you know, experience of the world that sort of there's an ex extra iteration in some sense that gives information as, as to what to do. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, your guess is good as mine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that would be, it would be, I mean, but it is like you're saying though, there is a mechanism and there is something going on that is an algorithm that is waiting to be discovered in this regard. So, so it's exactly. fascinating. That will, that I think will, would fundamentally change our conception of how the brain works. If somebody, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like we, we have a phenomenon that we, that, that we know is important. We've seen it in physiology and MRI. In fact, to my mind, these, these, uh, you know, mixed selectivity and, and representation shifts are the best example that we have of a non-sensory, like non, non, you know, first order, like a higher order, non-stationary relationship between MRI and, and uh, physiology. So, you know, the evidence is really strong, but we just don't know what, we don't know really how the thing that controls the thing works. We don't, yes. really, you know, that's, that's what we're missing. That's exactly right. I mean, it's kind of a meta uh, question, but it's, yeah. but there is something there that is controlling that. And, and I'm going to continue thinking about that because it's a, it's a true, I wonder if, so one other just random thought before we go on to this, I wonder if uh, you, there could be hints of seeing this in transitions between tasks, like a transient signal that's somehow like, you know, the whole brain or somehow some subcortical loop or, or something like that, that happens at this, at these transitions at, at where you tell people to redirect their attention in some regard, you might be able to pull this out in some way. Yeah, who knows? I mean, at least mapping where it's, where it might be happening in some way. Right. I, I think, I think, you know, what we need is either better time scale information for, or better spatial resolution information or both for humans, or we just need to be able to record more neurons in an animal that can do task switching really effectively. Right. right. I mean, right, right now, you know, you can record all the neurons in a zebrafish, but you know, that's not going to probably tell you a lot about this mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. You can record a lot of neurons in a mouse, but even mice aren't that smart, but if you could get a rat, you know, you might be able to look at this and certainly in a primate or a human. So I, I have a feeling that there are a lot of questions that will be approachable when we can do large scale neuronal recording from bigger animals in the future. I'll probably be retired by then, but. <laughs> so you think it requires neuronal recording at the high temporal resolution? Like for instance, you know, uh, Steve Peterson's group has done, you know, they've looked at insula with task switching. I mean, task switching is a common thing that people look at and they see, oh, the insula follows the task switch in some sense. And then, you know, might, who knows? There might but, be but, the, but the task switch, so <laughs> the task switch involves a switching of tasks. Right, not attention. So if you, Right. Yeah. So, well, but, but they're, they're correlated. The point is yeah. that whatever the control signals are for changing the match filters and for, you know, changing the selectivity <laughs> are directly correlated with this change of task. So you can't take those apart. You know, that, that, that kind of experiment is necessary, but not sufficient for showing anything related to control signals. Yes. And, yes. and again, the control signals could be implicit. It may be that there is no control signal, that somehow or other the control information is just distributed through the whole network. Yep. In some implicit way, 
that we do not understand. So I, I, I think, you know, it's perfectly fine to look at task switching, but I don't think that on its own is going to answer the question. I completely agree with that. Right. It's almost impossible, you know, by definition, by how we define them. I mean, it's impossible to pull that apart. Um, right. I mean, you might, you might be able to by, you know, you could imagine making some sort of hybrid task where there's abrupt switches and then more gradual switches, maybe due to implicit learning or something, but I don't know. I, I, maybe. You know, I've thought about this for years. I just, I, I have no ideas. So, you know, hopefully somebody younger and smarter than me will be able to, and you might be one of those people, um, <laughs> will be able to solve this when I, I have not been able to. I think I'm going to go to my grave wondering about this problem. <laughs> but don't worry, I, I will not write a book saying the brain is unsolvable because I did not solve it, as so many other old neuroscientists have done. <laughs> you know, or maybe it will require, and maybe this is a good transition into this, um, maybe it will require um, the relationship between, you know, brain mapping, understanding neuroscience and, and AI. I mean, people are trying to come up with better and better algorithms with AI. And then, then they're, you know, they're trying to um, use AI to inform models of uh, hypotheses for how the brain works. You know, this might be something where some clever person in AI comes up with something like this, because you know, right now AI doesn't really have, like you're saying, it doesn't really have attention or, or, well, there, there are attention, there are so-called attention networks in AI, but they, they right. are very AI-centric. There, there are mechanisms that are not really biologically plausible. And for the most part, AI is always straddling two worlds. So by AI, we shouldn't say AI, we should say deep networks, right? Because yeah. it's one specific kind of AI. The, the deep network crowd is always kind of straddling two worlds because in one sense, a lot of those people were either motivated by neuroscience or they recognize there's things the brain does that might be useful for them and they would like to incorporate those in their models but on the other hand they got to get work done and yeah. you know they got to make something that works and they're not most of that community is not being paid as computational neuroscience people right. so the wonderful thing about the deep network community is you know it's not like an animal experiment you can do thousands tens of thousands of experiments very very quickly and so you can explore the potential space of interesting mechanisms much faster yeah. Um, and you can find what will never work, right? That's, you can kind of exclude possibilities. So I don't, I don't think that community is really focused much on trying to really implement the, the more sophisticated aspects of attention uh, right. that we know from the human brain or from animal brains into, into the deep network, artificial deep network community yet, but they might in the future. I mean, there's lots of, right. I just get a sense that there's so much opportunity as far as that's concerned as we iterate forward, but, but okay. All right. So that, um, I realize already we're, we're <laughs> it's these conversations go quickly. Let's just talk a little bit about uh, layer fMRI. I mean, it, so right away, when you talk about, like, for instance, you're even talking about how these networks uh, communicate. And certainly, um, either layer fMRI or high, super high resolution DTI, diffusion tensor imaging, to, to get at fiber tracks potentially at extremely high resolution. Uh, and you're at Berkeley. You're, you're going to be getting you know, probably the best scanner in the world for doing layer fMRI that has a combination of seven Tesla and a local head grading coil that allows you to go much faster, make better images, higher resolution. Uh, and also for DTI as well, uh, tracking fiber tracks at a, at a much, much higher uh, uh, spatial resolution. Um, so what are your thoughts that about layer fMRI and, and what it might bring? Um, and then certainly with all the caveats too. I, I will give my opinion on this if you promise to give your opinion after mine. Sure. Because I'm kind of curious. I, I am not an MRI physicist, right? So uh, I am really not the expert on this. My general view on science is more data is always better. 
you should always try to collect all the data you can and you should always try to collect the highest quality data you can because bad data is like a, a millstone around your neck that you cart around forever it's never never worthwhile to collect bad data so uh in general you know i'm a frustrated neurophysiologist and i and I'm, I'm happen to be doing MRI, but I would like to be recording from neurons. So I want to get as close to neurons as I can. So I want to collect the highest resolution MRI data that I can. And um, as we were discussing earlier, one of the problems with conventional, uh, you know, three Tesla bold MRI is that you're recording from, you know, venules that are pretty big, actually, um, and that are quite far downstream from the cortical columns. And to me, the promise uh, or, or potential promise of layer-specific MRI, which would involve both increasing the resolution of the magnet and using pulse sequences that are more, that are, are more bespoke um, tailored pulse sequences like VASO uh, than, than standard bold epi that we'll hopefully get at smaller blood vessels. The, the promise of that is that we could actually record from columns. That's really, to me, the, the most important thing. And if you can record from layers within columns, great. When people talk about layer MRI, layer functional MRI, they're not really talking about layer functional MRI. They're talking about having an MRI machine that is potentially of high enough spatial resolution to potentially be able to record from layers, right? Yes. And that's, so that's really what we're talking about here is an increase in spatial resolution. The increase in spatial selectivity for small vessels versus large vessels really has to come by through pulse sequence development, not just the machine itself. Because bold epi is always going to be biased towards recording from big surface vessels. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So good. I have learned something from the MRI physicists I talked to. That's good to know. Okay. As long <laughs> as you keep agreeing and then I'll know I'm safe. So, um, so uh, my, my reason for, uh, you know, being an advocate of this project and trying to help on it where I can because this is not my project, right? This is a project really, uh, it's an effort spearheaded by a professor at Berkeley, David Feinberg, who's done a great job of like herding cats from all over the world, uh, from several places in the United States and from Siemens Central to try to, to develop this project and to build it. And it's uh, supported by a, a very large uh, Brains Initiative grant. So uh, the machines in development, my goal is just to have higher spatial resolution. Uh, I think, the machine will, you know, using the encoding model approach, we will be able to determine if we're seeing later specific signals or not. And the way we'll be able to determine that is that we know from physiology that there are subtle differences between the infragranular and the supergranular and the granular layers, essentially, you know, you're not going to see all seven layers of cortex, but you can divide it into the stuff above layer four, layer four-ish and below. And there are systematic differences in the tuning properties of those neurons. And we should be able to see a sign of that reflected in MRI. And if we do, then we'll be happy. And if we don't, then we'll just have a really high spatial resolution machine. Yeah. Okay. And I and I actually agree. Uh, I agree 100% with what you're saying. I think that uh, you know the big problem is the vascular, uh, the, the functional resolution with vasculature. And and yeah, certainly with meso, uh, you can get down to uh, you know micro uh, vessels. Maybe not. I mean, you can get capillaries, but then um, and maybe arterioles it includes that. Uh, right. You know, there's three grace that uh, David Feidberg has has uh, has been pushing. That seems to be working well. We don't. I don't fully understand exactly why it's working as well as it does, but it does. It does seems to have a good comparison uh, in terms of specificity. There's also calibration techniques that give up a lot of signal noise. You can calibrate against. Um, you know, you can give a, a CO2 stress and calibrate against the. 
you know, the magnitude of this bold signal change and then divide that, that, that calibration curve. Ah, right, right. That's also very... So that would basically be a way of adjusting the bold epi data. Exactly. But is that, that is not going to be biased to big surface vessels? Because it will remove their effects, I take it. It will remove their effects. You'll end up with the noisy stuff that's not that. Yeah, the assumption is that when you give a CO2 challenge, you give a global, uh, it's the same oxygenation, the same blood flow change everywhere. And so the magnitude of the change is directly proportional to the, you know, the vessel size or the, the bold effect in each voxel. You just divide that out then and you can get very, very specific. So it's great. It works in theory. And uh, it's just a, because you're dividing, it, you're giving up some silt noise, which we're struggling for um, at, at super high resolution, of course. Um, I actually, I, I'm, I've been very skeptical of, of layer fMRI, even, even with Vaso, but uh, there have been about a handful of papers that have uh, shifted that skepticism a little bit more towards optimism um, in the sense of, you know, having specific modulation of upper and lower layers. I agree with you that we may not get beyond three. Yeah, upper and lower. I think three is practical. Yeah. yeah, but if you can actually, if, and if there, if you could actually do, uh, you know, whole brain high resolution histology uh, you know, with quantitative MRI to get a sense of, you know, obviously if you look at, you know, Vanessa's papers of, it's complicated also in terms of the output versus input uh, at specific layers. And, you know, right now we're under the model of, you know, upper layers output and lower layers input and, mm-hmm. um, and some maybe a little bit of complexity there, but. Well, it's, it's, yeah, it's out, output to other cortical areas versus uh, subcortical. Okay. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and so that's maybe, you know, like maybe that's a gross oversimplification, but it seems to work for visual but see, I, I would argue that, I mean, it's, in some sense, who cares about layers? I mean, look at the number of neurophysiology papers that have been published where nobody gave a damn what layer they were in. And in fact, all, all primate neurophysiology papers until like the last few years were biased toward these giant layer five pyramidal neurons because those are the biggest neurons, right? And we learned a huge amount from that. So because the cortex is columnarly organized, right? We, you know, taking V1, area V1 as the model for all of cortex. And we don't know if that's true, but you got to start somewhere, right? You got to generalize from some model, then, you know, there's going to be columns that are functionally specific over the whole cortex. And if we could just measure those functionally specific columns, that would be like, to me, a giant like win. Yeah. And actually I have two thoughts on that. One is, so with layers, the main thought, the main hope, at least from a physicist, so I'm sort of naive in this regard, but I think that we are thinking that, oh, well, you can better inform these these connectivity models, or you know, causality. You can get a causality better because you know what area is now speaking to the other area. You can what area is influencing the other areas, as opposed to just having two blobs. Um, so that's the hope is, in terms of oh, if upper layers are activated, then maybe it's speaking to other cortical areas, whereas the lower, you know. So that might be a hope of putting arrows on the connection. Model. But what what is that going to buy you? Here's my question about this is always, what is that going to buy you without ha- beyond what you already know by having a complete high dimensional functional uh, map? So for example, imagine you find a number area in, in parietal cortex. There's a very well-known number area in parietal cortex. And then you find another number area in prefrontal cortex. What are the odds that those are not connected? Like pretty low, right? right. <laughs> So you kind of, you can infer the connectivity to first order 
yeah. just by the functional signals themselves. And then what having a, like anatomical, I mean, sure, anatomical connectivity would be great. It's going to help uh, because what it's going to do is it's going to enable you to distinguish between sort of first order connections and second order connections. But I'm not actually sure that it's going to help you understand the function of the brain more than understanding the function, right? To me, the functional maps are like the primary data that we care about. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I see what you're saying. Um, and the I, other uh, things are anatomy thing. The way I think about this, at least, is that there's a lot of people trying to create these uh, dynamic models of the brain, you know, these, these um, where you have, uh, you know, you have the brain made up of all, uh, thousands of nodes and they're all sort of interacting. And if you can actually point to the direction of, of, the, uh, of the influence of the nodes, that might help understand the network dynamics a little bit better. Uh, in that regard. Well, I guess I'm a strong believer in science of walking before you try to run. And, you know, so I, I oftentimes divide up the scientific world into like first order problems and second order problems. And I just personally believe it's really hard to study a second order problem before you understand the first order problem that the second order problem is riding on top of. Yes. And so like the, the first order problem is kind of how is the brain divided into parts? Yes. And what are those parts? then how are the parts hooked together, right? So I, I, you know, I feel like we still don't know how the brain's divided into parts and what is the function of those parts. And that's why my lab tends to focus on that because I feel like that is evidence that you need for everything else. You know, of course, there's two classic ways to get how is the brain divided into parts. And one of those has historically been more successful than the other. The first one is anatomy. So, you know, the reason we have this great model of the primary visual system is because, you know, neuroscientists spent a lot of time with dyes and dye injection studies and, you know, basically tracked tracing, anatomically tracing one area to another. And, and then they had one other tool that was very handy for vision, which is retinotopy. And the combination of being able to make retinotopic maps and having these anatomical tracers enabled them to create a really nice diagram of the primate brain. And anatomy, of course, since the 19th century, before the 19th century, has been the way that we divide brains. But another way to do this, which is should provide conversion information, is functional mapping at very high resolution. And in fact, it's probably the case that any anatomical structure that you find has a functional correlate. But there may be a lot of functional structures that actually don't have an anatomical correlate that you can measure. Huh. Presumably there's some anatomy, but maybe it's just implicit connectivity that's you know in some subtle pattern that huh. you wouldn't see. Right. right? Fundamentally, the people who care about anatomy are anatomists, like you know, psychologists and and uh, computational neuroscientists. You know, what we really want to know is how does the system function. And so, to me, the functional—that's why I always prioritize functional mapping in my lab because, to me, that's like the the it's both the first order data that we all need, and it's potentially higher resolution than the anatomical images. I mean, yeah, and it sort of speaks to the idea that the, I mean, the brain is obviously organized. You know, there's these spatial temporal structures that might occur across many different time scales and spatial scales throughout. And we're trying to cut through this in a way that sort of gives us some sort of understanding right. of, of how the brains are. I mean, we don't even know. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I, that is the most salient. Yeah, I, I do want to add that I have nothing against anatomy. I'm a horrible anatomist, but you know, I did spend seven years in David Van Essen's lab. So you know, I, I, I do appreciate anatomy. I know how difficult it is. I know how important it is. And you know, ideally we would have both really good functional information and really good anatomical information because those are going to 
those are going to facilitate one another. So you mentioned this issue about high resolution diffusion imaging. You know, diffusion imaging is actually, I think, kind of a miracle that it, it works at all. Yeah. But, but but it's really only good for you know big fiber tracks, right? It doesn't really work that great for small fiber tracks, and it completely falls apart the minute the fibers decussate into gray matter and like you know go all over the place. So so it would be really nice to be able to solve those problems and and have better diffusion imaging. Yeah, well, there's been some nice. I mean, there I, I've sort of felt the same way, but I'm starting to see like really nice work from you know Max Planck with at seven Tesla with the high gradients. I mean those those connectome scanners. Are starting to get at U fibers. They're starting to get at um, once you're in cortex, they see the descending. You know, they they're starting to get that structure. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Um, well, hopefully the new scanners will be great for that because they're yeah. you know the nice thing as you you kind of mentioned in passing. The nice thing about the new scanner is I think this will be the only seven. I mean, for a while it'll be the only seven T scanner with a head only gradient, right? Yes. Uh, so if when you're only putting the gradient over the head, you can basically increase the energy dramatically because you don't have to worry about causing heart problems and higher gradients, of course, in MRI mean more signal to noise. So hopefully it will be useful. And I'm sure within a few years, Siemens will start selling these elsewhere, probably as an upgrade to uh, existing 70s. Which is so funny is that, is that, you know, I started my career with, with the local, you know, we, you know, Eric Wong actually built a local head grading coil out of sewer pipe and wire just to, (laughs) um, and we, and we, you know, we wrapped it and we, had epoxy and uh, uh, we stuck it to the GE Signa 1.5 Tesla scanner to make it do echoplanar imaging uh, at, at you know at the resolution that we had to do and you know before they had high they only had these, these weak <laughs> amplifiers so I've been I've been sold on grading coils ever since the beginning <laughs> and and definitely I you know it's funny though because I've talked to Siemens you know I mean obviously their their stance changes and, and it's not never one person but I've talked to them and a few years ago and they're like oh grading coils that's you know, we're, we're not interested. And, and it, clinically, it's a little bit tougher because you have to put a patient, you know, they're thinking always of the clinical market. You have to put a patient exactly. in and it's, it's a little bit cumbersome. And, and it's, so it doesn't quite fit that clinical ease of use niche yet. Well, and it, yeah, if there's no clinical reason for this thing to exist, then they can't sell it. Right. So right. if, if uh, the main use of MRI in the clinic for the brain is stroke, right. Or, or developmental disorders, but mostly stroke or brain tumors, right? diseases. Yeah, and they figure we, they can do that at 3T. So what the heck, why do we even need better MRI, right? So that I think that's the general view and hopefully that will change, but it's, it's I think the basic scientist's job to show that this stuff is clinically relevant. And actually, we didn't talk about that. Let me just make a small pitch here for, <laughs> you know, I think we mentioned in the last, the, the last talk, it may have come up that, you know, MRI is not, functional MRI is not used in the clinic at all today. It's used for pre-surgical mapping for brain surgery to map out the eloquent areas so that whatever the neurosurgeon cuts out will not be anything you will notice is missing. And that's its only use. And to me, that is very sad because, you know, all of these brain disorders that we all, both developmental disorders and disease states like, you know, schizophrenia and autism spectrum disorder, and even things like dyslexia, they must have functional consequences, right? If they only affected the brain architecture and didn't affect function, no one would care about them. It would not matter. So they all have functional consequences, but in our diagnosis, prognosis, and monitoring of these brain diseases or or brain disorders, we do not use functional imaging (laughs) at all to, to assess these these yeah. uh, things. And I think that's just really, uh, I don't know, I, as a taxpayer, I find this very um, annoying because uh, I feel like it would be more efficient if we 
could do this. So, so one of the things my lab's been working on a, last, uh, a lot the last few years is trying to transition our encoding model framework to the clinic. And of course, that's, that's a long slog because clinical imaging has a lot of constraints that uh, scientific imaging doesn't. I could also go on uh, a, a lot about, right, what, are, what really are the reasons why it's not used clinically? And because it seems like also a chicken or egg thing, like, you know, vendors really don't want to put man hours into developing fMRI stuff because there's no clinical market. And uh, to make a clinical market, you actually have to disseminate it to some degree to get to kind of get things going. And to disseminate it, you actually need, it's not just pushing a button and seeing an image. It's like, there's this whole processing world that has yeah. to go on that is completely outside of what's typically done with MRI that has to be created. And yeah. I think there's some hope creating something like this, maybe a cloud-based system that brings the processed image to the radiologist. Something like that needs to be integrated with the system. Otherwise, right, it's, it's gonna be hard. So you think this is both an evidence problem, meaning that we just don't have the evidence that functional imaging is relevant for these diseases, and it's a it's a software problem, it's an implementation problem. Yeah, I think it's I think it's there's growing evidence that the that the fMRI or fMRI or or uh, physiologic MRI, for instance, even even looking at uh, vascular patency and things like that, uh, using functional signals is clinically relevant. And I think that, and I think, right, we're, we're on the verge of finding, you know, things like biomarkers that are related to, you know, whatever clinical disorders, they're there. It's just a matter of, and actually, we didn't even talk about that, of, of looking at the, you know, variability across subjects and how do you actually, you know, compare that. But we talked a little about that last time as well. But, but, but the point is, though, is that I think that's there. It's, that's sort of on the edge. The practical implementation is on the edge, but there's not much incentive because it's a risk uh, and it's a, it's a huge cost. Um, so they're, they're both sort of holding there. If one goes, then, the, then you'll find more applications. And, and if you suddenly find a ton of applications, then the other one's going to go as well. So I think they're, they're at some sort of state of, on the edge of, of going over and, and opening up a clinical market. But um, mm. maybe I'm optimistic though. <laughs> no, I am too. I, th I think that, you know, this rock can be pushed up the hill. It's, it's just, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, kind of entrenched practices and culture that has to be changed and evidence that has to be provided that this is useful. And yeah. so, you know, and the, and the constraints have to be overcome. I mean, if I can take a graduate student and, you know, graduate students who are designing new studies in my lab will usually pilot their own study and they might spend, you know, I don't know, 10 hours in the MRI machine over, over months piloting their study and getting everything to, you know, optimized right. before they collect new subjects. And, um, you know, in the clinic, you, you have 20 minutes. So yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a right. huge difference in the volume of data and it severely impacts what is doable. But, yeah, what I like to say is that we're, you know, so we're one killer app away from having fMRI sort of disseminated clinically. I mean, we, we, need, <laughs> one, we need one, you know, yeah. pre-surgical mapping isn't quite, doesn't quite do it. Um, we need something that- There's not enough people that need surgery, really. Right. That's the that's problem. <laughs> that's a really good yeah. point. If it could be like a screening test for something or, or, or you know, who yeah. knows, right? Something that other techniques can't do. And there's a, there's a value there. I think I think it's a matter of time before we'll find I like it. that one killer app from, I like, I like that. I'll, I'll, just, I'll have to think about things that way. Try to come <laughs> up with a killer app. But just to back up just briefly, very, very quickly about layer of MRI. So you mentioned columns. There is more hope for columns, actually. I, I, I think that, uh, so uh, Renzo Huber, who's at Maastricht right now, you know, he, had, he had some really intriguing data that showed the point spread function of the hemothenemic response across layers and across, uh, across columns, across the cortical sheet. 
And, and he found that that bold actually compared really well with vaso when you went across the cortical sheet. Uh, vaso was better in the, in the layers, but bold is is almost as good, if not the same, when you go across the cortical sheet at high res. Yeah. At high res. Well, that certainly makes everybody's life easier. Yeah. So it seems to find that the that the that the main artifacts, uh, the vascular artifacts, are more descending in the cortex rather than rather than spreading across the across the sheet in some sense. So I mean, it sort of suggests something about the the vasculature to some degree. Yeah. Well, that the um, as I recall, don't quote me on this, but as I recall, the vasculature in primary visual cortex is that there's a capillary through every column, which means that there must be a surface vessel going to each column. So that does imply that you could measure from the surface vessels if you get the resolution down. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So it's so there's a lot of work, a lot of a lot of people working on that as Ren well. Renzo is is collaborating with the the group that's building our uh, our new machine. So. Um, yeah, I, I really like him. He's, 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 he seems to have his head screwed on his shoulder straight. So yeah, Renzo, I'm excited to see what he does. Renzo's amazing. And I'll even say this. I mean, he's I mean, I'm slightly biased because he was my postdoc, but um, <laughs> he was. But, uh, you know, I, I felt like I, you know, I was just sort of like, hey, just do what you want. And, and uh, this is great. So I, you know, <laughs> and Renzo, I feel really, really is pushing the field now. Yeah, he's what he's probably the best person in the field in terms of really you know, has his whole website devoted to FMI. He's keeping up on all the literature. He's doing the pulse programming. He's doing every aspect of it. And it's just really impressive. Anyway. Isn't it, isn't it great when you have a postdoc that feels like, you know, they're actually better than you and they could just, you should just give up your job and they should just take it. I have a few postdocs like that. I love them. They're awesome. I think, yeah. well, if I die, they could just hire this guy. And he would, but the department would actually be better off than having me. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, Renzo... And it's funny though, because he just, it's, it's very clear. He just wants to work. He doesn't want to, you know, he doesn't necessarily want the overhead. I mean, a lot of people are like this where they just, they don't want to lead a lab. I mean, that's involves yeah. politics and paperwork and stuff. And you just want to do the work. You just want to do the work. And he's very focused on that, which is great. And, and yeah, no, I just step back and let him do. And I, and certainly we have great discussions. I feel like it's, um, that uh, you know, my ideas can be leveraged a lot more efficiently uh, and rapidly. Just saying it to Renzo, and then off he goes. It's amazing. <laughs> and actually, that's it's not only Renzo. I mean, I have a lot of. I, that's actually the whole the whole idea of having a lab in some sense, where where um, you feel like you reach a stage where you you have ideas, and and there's people that are really good at the implementation, and they just they need the instruction or they need some sort of yeah. They wisdom. You have the wisdom. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. And and it works well. It's very yeah. synergistic. Just just being able to tell people, oh yeah, 10 people have tried this over the years. Here's all the ways they failed. So, you know, if you're gonna do this, you you need to you know, don't do any of those 10 things. Yeah. <laughs> Try something else, right? That's that's incredible, an incredible time saver for a young right. person. <laughs> right, exactly. That's really what we know is what didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> if it worked, it's published, right? So that they don't need us for that. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So just to, to finish this up, we covered a lot of ground. This is great. Uh, just to finish up, maybe a last question about, about you know, we, we sort of hinted at this. We talked a little, we went talked all around this. Um, I mean, what excites you most about fMRI, the potential of fMRI? Where might its absolute limits be? You know, is it really going to tell us how the brain is organized? Um, how, how far is it going to get us? Uh, just open-ended questions. Well, I mean, I, I don't, I think you are the only person who has published an abstract that actually tried to get MRI to measure something that wasn't blood flow and measure 
neural activity directly. And I, I noticed there was no follow-up paper on that. So um, I, 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 I have a feeling we're doomed on that front, right? I mean, MRI oh. is, ah, oh, the man has- Well, it's a, funny. I mean, so there's a joke in my lab. There's a joke in my lab where, where I'm always thinking about neural current MRI. And, and I'm always thinking, and it's always funny because they always say, well, when, you know, when someone comes, and I don't even notice I do this, but when a new person comes in my lab, I always, I always sort of tell them all my ideas about how to try to pull out neural current imaging. And, and then everyone else's lab is like, don't do that. Don't do that. It's just, <laughs> it's, it's suicide. And I, I agree with them. I'm like, this is probably a risk, high risk, uh, you know, low, high, high risk, high gain sort of thing. But. <laughs> so you think though, that someday it might still be possible. Yes. I mean, you know, in MRI, you can't ever say no. Right. I mean, but, you know, it's just like, who would have expected that we're where we are in, you know, 1950, right? I think, I think that, you know, we're within an order of magnitude of sensitivity. Wow. That's not bad. <laughs> um, it, it's close. Uh, I think we're close. I think we're close. If we get a handle on all the, all the motion, all the noise, all, and there's a lot of clever ideas out there in terms of how to play with magnetization such that you can be more sensitive to neural current effects as opposed to bold. And, you know, there's other people like Levy Han who claim to see cell swelling with diffusion imaging. I'm a little bit skeptical about that, uh, but it's that's sort of growing a little bit in terms of looking at, you know, these cell swelling effects. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, yeah, I think, I don't think it's there yet. I'm always thinking about how to, how to push neural current imaging. And certainly there are, there have been papers out there, sometimes on phantoms, sometimes models, proof of concepts, but um, yeah, I mean, there's some, you know, uh, there's a group in Korea that just, I, I just finished, uh, believe it or not, um, looking at a paper from them. They claim something like this, but they don't know the mechanism. They see a rapid change and they don't know exactly what the mechanism is. So there's stuff out there like that. Well, I, I'm not planning to pursue any neuro, real neurophysiology with uh, MRI, but I definitely hope that you, um, you succeed or someone succeeds. There, there have been four Nobel Prizes for MRI so far. And I think if somebody actually managed to measure neurons with MRI, that might that would probably be another Nobel Prize. So every time you think there can't be any more Nobel Prizes for MRI, somebody else comes up with something cool. So <laughs> it would be great. It would be great. So um, my, my view is, you know, I think the one thing that's going to change over the years is people are going to use more rigorous methods than have been used traditionally to sort of analyze and model their data, which I am, of course, a big fan of. I think people are going to use more complicated experimental paradigms. Um, certainly, probably the biggest change from when I was uh, a young graduate student and today is trying to get somebody to even acknowledge that a naturalistic experiment or a complicated experiment was viable when I was a, a kid was almost impossible. I spent the first 20 years of my career fighting that battle. Uh, and now nobody has a problem with using naturalistic experiments. So that that's nice to see because that means that we can record data that is sort of higher dimensional data under more naturalistic conditions where the models are more likely to generalize to the real world. So that's all great. And then of course, the whole spatial resolution thing is a continuous change. Even, even if we're stuck to measuring blood flow, we can measure at a higher resolution and that's going to be great. So I, I don't, I think see any radical, you know, in, in the, however long I have left in a career, I don't see any radical changes coming along the pike for MRI. I do think that MRI kind of has to rescue itself from some bad PR that we've had over the past 10 years, uh, where, you know, MRI, everybody was very, very excited about MRI between say 1995 and 2005. Yeah. And then between say 2005 and 2015, people thought it was meh. 
and now people are act actively hate it. So I think that's <laughs> bad. That's clearly our fault as a community, and we need to do something about that. I think the kind of two biggest directions for human-centered neuroimaging are one, moving it into the clinic and trying to do useful things to, that can actually help people. And the second is uh, exploring new modalities of brain imaging that are not MRI. You know, there's, yeah. there's a lot of remaining modalities left. A lot of people have been working on uh, neuroinfrared spectroscopy. Yeah, EFNRs. All the EFNRs devices, I, we, we maybe talked about this the last time we talked, I can't remember. Um, all the EFNRs devices out there right now just use the amplitude information. They don't use phase. They can't really tell the direction that the photons are coming from. So they are scatter limited and very low resolution. And, you know, it, it, something might be able to be done with that. Um, I've seen a lot of proposals to use ultrasound. Yep. You can clearly use ultrasound to lesion the brain through the skull because you can just keep turning up the amplitude as loud as you want to yeah. <laughs> get it through the skull. But getting signals, reading signals through the skull backwards from the brain with ultrasound is very, very difficult. Yes. And there's, you know, I've been working on a radar project for five years um, that may or may not work in the end. You know, there's a lot of different modalities for uh, brain imaging that might in some cases complement MRI or might allow MRI-like measurements out in the real world. Like if, if FNRs actually worked well, that would be a, a real boon. Yeah. But all these things I think are evolutionary. Yeah. Now, now neural current recording, that would be revolutionary to me if you could make it work. So you, know, you are the revolutionary. I'm just, I'm just trying to make things better. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I think you're right. I think though that, you know, there's all these other techniques that, and it's always interesting to figure out how to, you know, to try to speculate on how the interaction of the multiple mo modes of, of imaging might might give something more than just the product of, of the two of them uh, in some way. Oh, right, potentially. But you know, people people have tried to do that with EEG and MRI for a long time, right? I mean, uh, and that you know, there there are some studies of EEG and MRI that are reasonable. There are a few labs who can make it work, but it's never gotten to the point where just anybody, you know, I can just go down to the EEG store and buy an EEG system to stick in my MRI machine and, and have faith that within a couple of weeks I can make it work. It's just yeah. never gotten to that level. Yeah. So, um, but I agree. I agree. I agree that, um, I mean, the field's more going towards multimodal sort of synergistic sort of interactions of, of these techniques. And certainly, yeah, you know, I'm always motivated to, to think about carefully about neural current imaging. And there's and about once, you know, three times a year, I would say there's papers that are submitted that suggest neural currents. And there are there are things that I believe that, you know, it's, I feel like now we're talking about like sighting UFOs or something. You know, we, uh, you know, there are there are signals that we see that are rapid and transient in MRI that 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 look uh, like they could be real. And, and it's just a matter of, you know, doing the work and, and, and trying to figure out exactly what the mechanism is, but also but well the mechanism isn't isn't as important as just convincing people it exists. So yeah. right, that's that's a different kind of problem. I mean the mechanism is important. I'm not saying, you know, it, you but you kind of need two things. You right. you know, showing a mechanism without actually showing a function is not is not going to be sufficient either. I totally agree. I totally agree. You you need to actually show that it's reproducible, that it's correlated with some sort of behavior or stimulus in some way that yeah. makes sense. But also, I, I actually, I, you know, it's funny, the, the more I think about MRI, the, or even MRI or fMRI in general, I mean, what's unique about MRI is that you have so many parameters to work with. You have, you can control the pulse, the RF pulses, the gradients in, in so many different ways that provide so much different physiologic information. We're actually just, even after 30 or 40 years, we're still getting good and, and, and really as a field, figuring out how to do this well. So I think there's a lot of, I, I'm hopeful uh, that this type of progress will keep on being made. So, 
Um, and then, right, maybe every once in a while there's a revolutionary change. I'll, I'll be, I'm optimistic, so. Well, that's good to know. You're one of the main people moving this field forward. If you weren't optimistic, it would be very bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, um, and and as you are with with uh, with fMRI and and neuroscience, and so I, I I'm glad that uh, and, I, and I think everyone welcomes your honest critical view on on things. <laughs> Well, I don't know about everybody, but, um, you know, I mean, the, the bottom line is fMRI, you know, it has two great things going for it. It's on people <laughs> and it's really fun. Yeah. You know I mean, so there's not there, it, you know, it's quite enjoyable to look at the MRI data. And um, that's one thing I miss about having been in the pandemic for the last year and a half is, you know, one of one of the greatest things that happens to me during the week is when I go into the lab and somebody shows me some new data that I've never seen before that, and, you know, you can get the MRI data so fast compared to, you know, neurophysiology experiments. It's just night and day. And that, yeah. that's, that's very pleasant. It means you can optimize things a lot more and you can take a lot more risks. You can do crazy things that might not work. And I think the fMRI has the potential to be a lot more essentially experimentally creative than like neurophysiology, which is more limited by, you know, what, what can you measure? In MRI, we don't worry about that because we can only measure one thing. So it's more an issue of what can we do with what we get. Yeah, and and the signal is much much higher fidelity than, for instance, I mean, even for you know, if you're doing neurofeedback with fMRI, because the signal actually is you can actually get a meaningful response within one activation. Uh, with the yeah. EEG, you need a lot of averaging and and, and whatnot. The signal's noisier. Um, yeah, right. fMRI, it's just it's high fidelity signal. Uh, yep. it seems like. And that, now we've closed the circle because when we started this conversation. Like uh, two sessions ago, three hours ago now, we, we were talking about the fact that, you know, people don't appreciate how much data there is in these MRI signals. Yeah. And it really is a rich, a rich data source. Yes, I completely agree. All right. Well, well, thank you very much. This has been, this has been really, uh, I think that tons of information has come out, not only about your work, but also I think actually what, what's really cool is that you sort of, you know, either with MRI, but also even in neuroscience, I mean, you opened up, you, you dropped ahead at least a couple of perspective changing questions uh, that I think more neuroscientists should be thinking about and maybe they will and certainly with MRI they'll keep on going too. Thank, thanks that's very kind of you Peter and now your homework is get the neural current imaging thing working so that I can use it because I'm very excited about that and I just want it to work. Well so I will until next week. I will continue to be motivated on this. <laughs> I'm, I'm always thinking of it. And, uh, I, I always say you have to have, you know, you have to have 95 bad ideas before you get the five good ideas. So uh, you only just 95? haven't got through the 90. Yeah, exactly. You just <laughs> haven't got through the 95 bad ideas yet. You'll get there eventually. I'm still hopeful. And yeah, good. thank you. Thank you. All right. All right. Well, thanks again. And uh, uh, this, is, this has been great. Maybe we'll have you back for a third one. Who knows? Okay. <laughs> thanks a lot. All right. Bye. Take it easy. Neurosalience is brought to you by the Organization for Human Brain Mapping and is produced by Anastasia Brovkin, Ekaterina Dobrikova, Katie Moran, Niels Mulert, Kevin Zetek, and me, Rachel Stickland. Thank you.